Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Survive and Thrive, a podcast that brings you stories and perspectives on how in changing times, leaders and organizations can not only transform to survive, but also thrive. I'm your host and co-founder of Consinity, Jennifer Ayers. In this season, our third season, we want to help our listeners learn how to positively influence the change they want to see in their organization, minimize disruption, and even normalize the concept that change is usual. We plan to do this by exploring the eight tenets we covered in season two and talk to different leaders who have put these tenets into practice in their own way in their industry or consulting space. For today, I've got an exciting guest, Tammy Pinkston. I have had the pleasure of working with Tammy and knowing Tammy for a number of years. We worked together at Accenture. Tammy was always one of the leaders I would go to to understand what was really going on with the dynamics of the organization and how you can influence people in a positive and sustainable way. Tammy is presently a leader of organizational change management at ISG. She has a wealth of knowledge and an impressive background. She'll share that with us today. Well, thanks for having me, Jen. And yes, we, we've known each other for a long time now and collaborated in this space that we're both very passionate about. I hate to even admit that I've been in the organizational change management consulting space for almost three decades, which doesn't even seem possible. Oh, you're a baby. <laughs> <laughs> There's still work to be done there, so. There is plenty of work to be done, that's for sure. But I, I do remember starting in 94 with Anderson Consulting. I had just finished a PhD in strategic management at the University of Georgia and had been at the University of Oklahoma teaching. And I came back and wanted to do consulting because of the variety of clients and industries and projects. And I've certainly never looked back and never regretted that decision. When I started in the organizational change area in 1994, it was so new. It really, it wasn't a degree. So it wasn't something we were exposed to in our academic journey, but it was a really new field. And when I went to Anderson Consulting, because my PhD is in strategy, I had the conversations with the strategy consulting firms and they, you know, wanted to put me to work. But what I really wanted to do was focus on implementation. So actually putting change into action. It wasn't appealing to me to create all of those plans and have them sit on a shelf. I actually wanted to help people move from their current state to their future state. So that's what I've been doing for almost 30 years around the globe, all types of industries, all levels of the organization, all types of change. Sometimes it involves tools and sometimes it's just knowledge, skills, and ability changes for the workforce within, but never a dull moment. And I say the greatest irony of my life is I started at Clemson and was a double major, Spanish and psychology. And I switched over to the business school because I didn't think I wanted to be in school that long. And then irony is I ended up in school longer and I'm doing IO psychology work. So full circle. As someone who's been in the change management space for a while, it must have been interesting to see the field evolve over the years and get more traction in recent years. Even still, change management is not always understood for what it is. It is definitely a field that continues to evolve. 
I think that we continue to underestimate the power of the human being at the center of organizations. You know, I am constantly reminded that organizational change management is about moving people through the change that their organization is taking on. And at the very core of our human psyche, our our human existence, we like predictability. We like things that are known. And change introduces so much tolerance for ambiguity into the organizational workforce lives that people handle change differently. They handle it at different paces, different rates, different aspects of resiliency. And that's at the core of what we have to do in this field of study. I always go back to the definition of organization. Definition of organization is two or more people working towards a common goal. So it's always going to be about the people. I love the Kevin Costner field of dreams. Build it and they will come. And I always say not necessarily so. We have to help them understand why they should come, right? I have a feeling you and I might have a few programs we could point to where that was the motto. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) Just do this and they will follow. And that didn't really work out so well. While I love Field of Dreams, Tammy is right. She gives an example of just how important it is to understand your people while the organization is going through change. I'm working with a client today where no more than two weeks ago, it wasn't last week, it was the week before, where I had a client resource say, why are we doing this organizational change management stuff? They're going to have to do it. This is going to be the, the tool solution. So why don't we just tell them to do it and move on? I just took a deep breath. I like the power of pause. And I said, that's one strategy for sure. That is that is a strategy. But over those three decades, what I've come to learn is that is a strategy that works for a certain type of person. Absolutely. But for the majority of people, they need a little bit more information. They need to be led a little more gently. And at the end of the day, they need to be able to articulate their concerns or their questions or really just understand why, what's in it for them. And that's where we spend most of our time. What a uh, an interesting statement and not surprising. I think there's a lot of leaders out there that would ask that same question. And I think it's very important to, at those moments, point out that certainly you could take that strategy, but here are the implications One of the most important implications to remember in following that strategy is that everything will take so much longer and be so much more painful for everybody involved. However, some companies still neglect not only to plan for change, but guide their people through it. Tammy shares what that's like. Well, there's no question that if you don't take the time up front, the adoption process takes longer on the back end. And I've actually had several opportunities just within the last 12 months to go back in 
to a client that wasn't necessarily ours to start with, but to specifically address adoption because it wasn't part of the original plan. It wasn't something that was considered as part of the original playbook. And so you wonder why people continue after an ERP system, for example, has been implemented, why they continue to manage through Excel spreadsheets or access databases, or they have processes that work around the system until you really have taken them through the adoption journey. And it also has to be followed up. And this is where organizations don't do a very good job. It has to be followed up with what I call a compliance period. And I think compliance has a negative connotation and it's you know, not a word that organizations really necessarily like to talk about, but you really do have to build in that change program. You go live and you get people to that state. You have to build in on the back end part of your rewards, incentives, metrics, your programmatic processes, the ability to monitor are people using the new tools? Are people following the new processes? And if they are not, then you have to set parameters around, okay, you've got 30 days to continue to get your data from this Excel spreadsheet and compare it and contrast it with the ERP that we just spent millions of dollars on. And after that 30 days, if the data is not in the system, it doesn't exist for us. I think that you have all of the organizational change management activity that leads them through and up to go live, but the organization itself has to put pieces in place for post-go live sustainment that encourages people to continue the adoption, that forces in some way, reinforces that the tools, the processes as they have been defined for the future state is really the only acceptable parameters for behavior and outputs, etc. Tammy touches on one of our most important tenants, tenant eight, recognition and reward. It's important not only to provide your people support through a transition period, but to recognize their efforts and reward them. Reward them in a way that supports the behavior that aligns with your values as a company. Zooming out a little, Tammy and I discuss the process of change as a whole. While Tammy and her team follow different models of change management, she explains why one model, in her mind, is very effective. Well, I think for most of the change management programs that we're doing, and there are all kinds of frameworks out there, but I think the one we come back to so often is the ProSci ADCAR model. And I think that it's really the change program has to be built around those components of helping people understand why, what, when, where, and how, and then helping them get comfortable that we're going to continue to provide information, so communications along the way, as well as other tools that builds their competence and their confidence. So, you know, change is, is really about convincing people to take a leap of faith in some respects, because again, the majority of human beings don't really have a skill set 
that allows them to envision the future. So as part of a change management program, we have to paint that picture for them. I often go back to a, an MLK quote about, you know, there's a lot of people that can't take the first step without seeing the full staircase. I live in that world of ambiguity because we know we have to bridge the gap between the today and the tomorrow. We have to understand how big that gap is. And I just finished talking to a client not even an hour ago about at the heart of change management and moving people along the change curve is this concept of Maslow's need hierarchy and where individuals are in terms of their comfort level and their their motivational aspects. I mean, we go in with change plans and we do those initial communications announcements. This is the program. This is why it's happening. This is when it's going to happen. These are the key benefits. And, you know, there's a there's a majority or there's a good chunk of people who say, oh, yeah, that's that's 12 months off. You know, a lot of things can happen in a year. And a lot of organizations don't have successful change histories. So they're not really bought into this being something that actually happens. But as we continue to know about the project and learn more and more details, we've got to start painting that picture of the new world for employees so that they can begin to do that comparison between the today and tomorrow somewhat on their own, but then also through the tools that we include in the change management plans. It'll always include communications. It will always include change impacts because we have to know the magnitude of the change. It will always include some analysis of stakeholders because not all stakeholders are created equal and not all stakeholders are impacted to the same degree. Once you know what is happening and to whom, then we can begin to articulate the processes and the role changes so that they understand ultimately what they will start doing, what they will continue doing and what they will stop doing in that future state model. Most people have a general understanding of what future state might look like. However, Tammy points out a common challenge for most organizations. And I think out of those pieces, we're, we're really good at the start and the continue. We're less good at the stop. So you imagine as the employee who's seeing this new tool, who's seeing these new processes, and we haven't told them that they're going to stop doing anything and they don't understand all the intricacies of the solution. So they're looking at this as additional work. I mean, I've got to do that in addition to what I'm doing today. And it's like, no, that's replacing what you do today. So then we really get into the human psyche and they begin saying, but I'm really good at what I do today. I really know what I do today, almost like muscle memory. And we're taking all that away from them. It really is about painting the picture. It's about helping them understand their role in it. But at the end of the day, it's about activities that help them build their confidence and their competence. So what does confidence and competence building look like after all? Tammy shares an example. I have a really good example from a client a couple of years ago where 
we had done communications activity and everything was still a little bit nebulous for them. And we got to the, the training portions and we had them go through an exercise as they came in the room and we had them plot themselves on the change curve. We had a huge visual that shows, you know, we start at this level of productivity, the change is announced and we have the drop off in productivity and we wallow in this valley of despair for some period of time. And then eventually we begin to climb our way out of the valley of despair and we get to higher levels of productivity. So we had that change curve on a big poster. This was a, a low-tech situation, <laughs> not not all that digital. Uh, and we had them plot. We had them use colored dots and we said, plot yourself on this change curve. And we talked them through what it, you know, what it really meant. And over the course of the two weeks that we spent on site taking them through hands-on exercises, activities, and training, we took a couple of checkpoints and said, you know, mark yourself on the on the change curve. When they engaged and they'd get up there and they'd stand around that visual and they'd talk to one another and they it was fascinating to observe and just to even see the difference in their confidence in talking about where they were on the change curve from day one of training to day 10 of training. That in and of itself was a lesson in organizational change management. I love that example. It's low-tech, impactful, and visual for everyone involved. Even simple exercises or tools can help your team feel more understood in their concerns and even more grounded in the process of change. As she stated before, many times people are feeling friction psychologically, not just professionally. She discusses the power of walking beside people through a transformation and uplifting those who naturally can lead the group. Honestly, some of the exercises about giving them air cover, you know, there's a lot of conversation right now about psychological safety in our our work environments for sure. But it is about giving people the freedom to acknowledge that they're worried or that they're concerned or that they don't understand. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time the last 30 years, not not just for clients, but also for my own employees and team members, giving them air cover. And I think that's one of the things that is most effective in terms of leadership qualities, helping them understand it's okay to not not feel okay, to not understand, but we've got to walk through the journey. We've got to take the steps together and two-way feedback always is helpful in terms of what's working, what's not working, what do you still not understand, where do we need to come up with additional examples. Scenarios are great because it really does begin to help them understand what the new process looks like versus the old process or even what new knowledge, skills, and abilities may be needed. But I think one of the greatest tools for moving individuals through the change curve is having individuals in their own organization who may be more resilient, who may be more visionary, and can get through that valley of despair quicker, leveraging those individuals as agents of change, whatever you want to call them, but having them lead the way. Because as an external resource, I'm really never going to understand their current work model and work environment. But if I can get individuals 
who can move through that curve quicker because they've been part of the solution process or they understand how broken it is. When I can leverage them to help others understand in their own language, in their own experience, in their own ability to say, you know how we complain about XYZ not working? I'll never get to that because I'm not an internal resource. And those individuals can help paint the picture and can really begin to articulate the benefits and why you move through the curve, why you begin to adopt the new solution better than I ever will be. Those are just a few levers that I think we have at our disposal. I couldn't agree more with Tammy. Being able to connect and encourage those within the organization is one of the most sustainable ways to implement change. It creates a grassroots movement toward that transformation, which allows for the change to last even after a third-party group like a consulting group such as Tammy's have left. Ultimately, what's the point of evolving towards something better if the organization can't maintain that improved state? And taking a step back, I want to hear what Tammy has to say about the first tenet, building a case for change. While this tenet may seem simple, it is necessary in order for all other tenets to happen. When I asked Tammy about building a case for change, her answer surprised me and impressed me. Organizations aren't broken anymore. I mean, and I, and I say that rather loosely. It's so much easier to fix things that are completely broken. Most of the organizations that we have the opportunity to work with aren't quote unquote broken. There's always opportunities for improvement, right? And I believe that across the board. But the compelling case for change comes easier when it's broken, when it's not working, where it's not tenable. And then you get into those shades of gray where it's not broken, but it's not, it's not optimal. It's not the best that it can be. And, you know, I go back to 94 in terms of creating that compelling case for change, because I think nobody does it better than Daryl Connor. And you remember in his seminal book, The Managing at the Speed of Change, where he talked about the burning platform. There's just no better analogy than that burning platform. But the challenge is the burning platforms don't seem to be burning as hot or as bright and and workforces have spent a lot of time creating workarounds that allow them to get their work done even under less than optimal circumstances. One of the greatest lessons, and this was an early 90s lesson as well, is you can complain about your work processes and your tools all day long. And trust me, in my own company, I get aggravated all the time with some of the tools that we're using. But when somebody comes and tells you they're going to fix it or they're going to take it away, that tool that you complain about on a daily basis becomes the greatest thing since sliced bread because it's comfortable, because we know it, because it's what we've worked with and we figured out how to work around it. So it's really challenging to be able to articulate that compelling case for change Because remember, too, we talked about earlier, all stakeholders aren't created equal. And there are change programs every day that we do where one or two stakeholder groups are going to get more benefits than others. 
We're doing a lot of projects now around self-service. Well, self-service is fascinating because the individuals who you are moving towards self-service will no longer have those relations or rely on those resources that they used to work with to do their work. So you have two two areas of concern. You've got one, well, if I'm not helping people anymore, what am I going to be doing? And then you've got the employee on the self-service is like, but that's their job. Why do I have to do that now? You know, especially if you're working with Salesforce resources, right? They want to be out there with a customer and all of a sudden we're telling them, oh no, you need to enter that purchase order or you need to do some type of admin. It's like working with physicians. You know, they don't need, they don't want to write those notes after we've had our, our visits. But as we reallocate work, it is quite frankly, sometimes hard to justify it because there will be stakeholder groups that don't get as much benefit out of the situation or out of the solution. And that's why I believe more than ever, more knowledge in organizations about those end-to-end processes, where they fit, how they impact upstream, downstream processes, it's more important than ever. Because you can't just sit out there in your functional silo and not worry about the other entities in the organization that are either receiving your output and doing something with it or providing input for you. And unless you understand the holistic picture, all you can see is I'm doing more work. So that compelling case for change is really hard. Tammy tells me about one of her great success stories building the case for change. For this, we're going to go back to the 90s, folks. This would have been in the late 90s. So anybody that's listening to this says, has she had any success recently? Yes, of course. But these are the things (laughs) that stick out in my mind that I continue to use. But one of the greatest success stories on creating that compelling case for change, it was a telecommunications client Some of our audience may remember Motorola and all the excitement in the late 90s about the close process for financials and how they were speeding up that month-end close process. So this particular project that we started working on, the mantra for the project became two-day close. And let me tell you, when you're working with finance people or you're working with anyone who uses financial results, when you tell them you're going to go from a 14-day close to a two-day close, You can hear them for miles, right? They think it is the greatest thing ever. And in fact, it was, you know, it made headline news. But think about the power, a compelling case for change. And we're tying every decision on project related to a two-day close. Every, every meeting, this project went on for two years. Every meeting in that two-year timeframe, we could, we could boil it down to that question. Does it help get us to a two-day close? And if no, then it became, then why is it a recommendation? Why do we need to do it? And there were, there were some of those, but it was just clear. And it was clear at every level of the organization. And I think being able to create that case for change. Now, you continue that example and the way, if you know anything about financials, The way you get to a two-day close is not through actuals. It's through accruals. And it's through doing more of your financials in terms of estimates 
And then in terms of, you know, journal entry or corrections or confirmations or closes with actuals in arrears. And when a finance resource has been trained to, we need the data and we can't close the books without the data to going to, we're going to estimate based on trends, based on history. Imagine the mind blowing that happens when you have to convince that resource, no, it's okay, we can estimate and then we can go back and fix it. (laughs) They've spent their entire career being told that's not acceptable. So we literally were changing everything that they knew about the way that they did their work. So having that two-day close was just such a powerful barometer because what we were asking them to do was most definitely uncomfortable for them. Wow, that's great. Great story, great example. And really a very good point about not everyone might be comfortable with the change or there's going to be people that actually don't benefit from it. But if you are able to help the organization understand or get some perspective on their impact in the line of processes, um, you can use that as part of your rally cry. So what a fantastic example. Thank you for that. So Tammy and I have talked about how exercises can help move people through change. We've also discussed that outlining the case for change and uplifting leaders can really help propel transformation within the organization. But what happens when leaders aren't on board with the change? If they don't want to embrace it, why should their team? After all, leaders are people too, and people get uncomfortable with change. There is no question that leadership alignment is critical, and and we're talking about leadership alignment horizontally as well as vertically. And again, we've been trying to re-engineer the corporation for years and turn it from the functional silos to the end-to-end processes. And every organization out there is in some degree of each. It is fascinating to be in a room and have someone articulate what they believe the solution is intended to do and have somebody in the room articulate the exact opposite of that. And that's that's highly likely with functionally driven organizations because sales doesn't want you to to spend a whole lot of money on R&D. They just want to be able to go sell the product or finance doesn't want you to spend a whole lot of money on R&D. They want you to just be able to go sell, but sales is sitting out there saying, yeah, but my customer's asking for something different. And R&D sitting over here saying, yeah, but we want to build the latest and greatest. And finance is saying, yeah, but you, you don't have the money to do that. You know, I mean, it's just, it's a fascinating conversation. And I've been in so many high level meetings where the right hand didn't know what the left hand was doing. I think organizations are getting better at that because I think they are being intentional, but it is highly likely that the goals of a project are going to be different across the various leaders who are impacted by it. And this is where that end to end, you know, the the sum of its parts has to be greater than the individual's. That's where that kind of thinking has to come in. And I think it's an important activity to go through the exercise of because you need to know 
if you have leaders at the table who have competing priorities, because think about the level of influence that that leader has who's driving their entire organization in a particular direction that may not be consistent with where the organization is headed. I also think about it in terms of private and public sponsorship and spend a lot of time working with leaders on that construct that says, you know, when you sit at this table and you agree on whatever decision it is you are making, you cannot leave this table and go back to your work group and answer a question in an inconsistent way that makes them believe everybody else is going to change, but we don't have to. I think alignment is underestimated. Every organization that I go into believes that their leaders are aligned. And it's sometimes difficult to convince them to spend the money to actually go through leadership alignment types of activities. But I can guarantee for almost 30 years, every time I've done it, their goals are not aligned. Their behaviors are inconsistent. We actually have a pretty significant tool that we use to do leadership alignment. And it talks about alignment occurs because assumptions have not been articulated and validated. Misalignment occurs because people have different opinions. And you just never know those things if you don't undertake the exercise of getting them out on the table, getting people to articulate what's driving their decision-making, what's driving their direction, what's driving their leadership. It is an imperative activity that is not done often enough on major change programs. Wow, I love that. And boy, I'd love a sneak peek at that tool. <laughs> it sounds really slick. And calling out the the assumptions is a, a pretty important piece of that that I think is often overlooked. And the consequence of that misalignment is just devastating, I think, for a program because never mind the fact that these folks are not in in alignment behind what the outcomes are, but the messaging that cascades from that is so fractured. Well, I could spend another episode on our third tenant that Tammy has touched on, crafting meaningful messages. I want to circle back on her thoughts on identifying the change impacts. Our fourth tenant encompasses just that. The ability to pinpoint the impact of the change it is very essential, but it is often overlooked and misunderstood. Tammy tells me how she goes about identifying these impacts. I think change impacts are, are really the greatest tool for us to be able to create that vision for individuals who, who just can't get there themselves. And the change impact is really that differential between the as-is and the to-be in terms of simplification. And change impact collection is hard. And I think about it from an ERP, from a system implementation tool, and specifically, you have the organizational employees and project resources that really know the as-is, and you have the, the project resources who really know the end state and the 2B, and you have so little overlap between those two bodies of knowledge, and I, I actually think it's one of the reasons that I've enjoyed 
organizational change management as much as I have. And it even goes back to the PhD program. It's like, I knew I wasn't the smartest person in the room with the PhD program, but I knew I could understand what the brainiacs were talking about and translate it for the average human being. And I've spent 30 years doing that in organizations. I take the IT solutioning, technical solutioning, and I translate it into a, a language and into an understandable example and content for the user, for the average employee. And the only way we can do that is to work with the functional and technical resources when it's a tool involved or work with the process re-engineering teams, continuous improvement teams when they're redefining processes to understand that future state, be able to map it against current state. And then literally, I'm, I'm envisioning these maps that we draw all the time with process level zero to, to level four, whatever level you want to do. And then we literally can label that just like those maps in the mall where you used to see you are here and you'd put a star or a number one. And then we we look at those visuals in the processes and say, these are the things that are different. And we we number those, we put circles around the numbers, and then we talk about those changes on, on the next page of the documentation. Because again, right, it is trying to get the most concrete visual of what the new world looks like for individuals who only know what they've been doing. I think about this all the time because I've spent a lot of time in leadership development space and there's all kinds of frameworks out there that you can use to evaluate personalities and evaluate leadership types and all of that. And it comes down to if you have 100 people in the room, 50 people out of those 100 want every I dotted and every T crossed. 20 people on top of the 50 want everybody to feel good about it, right? So they're very people-oriented. And then you've got the remaining 30 that breaks out with maybe another 20 having the creatives and the everybody needs to have fun component. And then you've got less than 10% that sit in this visionary space that really can imagine what the future looks like. So those visionary people who get it have to help us spend time on making it concrete by identifying change impacts so that we can dot those I's and we can cross those T's for people that need that level of information to feel confident and competent. Ultimately, having that communication and cooperation helps connect the dots for many people. It allows them to see what others are doing around them or in other departments. Sometimes simply becoming more aware of those around you can be the key to unlocking organizational change. Before we wrap up today, I asked Tammy, in her opinion, what can businesses do to not only survive, but thrive and change? You have to pay attention to the people component, right? You, you have to go back to fundamentally organizations or two or more people working together towards a common goal, common solution. And that hasn't changed, even with robotics, even with automation. When people are involved, there are natural human tendencies and human behaviors to work through. And, you know, the same individual who was questioning why we would do organizational change management said, you know, 
we don't need all this touchy feely stuff to feel good. We don't care if employees feel good. It isn't about feeling good. It's about understanding what motivates the individuals in your organization to move to your desired future state. I just think that organizations make a mistake when they equate organizational change management with making sure people feel good. That isn't what it's about. It's about trying to move people through their adoption cycle, through the change curve, which isn't just about organizational behavior. It's about human behavior, right? We can go back to the very beginning of organizational change management and the psychology of it being tied to grief, being tied to the stages of death and dying, and the fact that when you change things for individuals, they can, in some instances, feel like that's being taken away. That is the death of something that I have known for years and and grown to have as part of my core definition of who I am. You can't underestimate that. And the individual's ability to work through that and become more productive in that new model. I like to tell clients all the time, this this is about the way we work, but this is about interpersonal activities. We're sitting here in this time frame and there's a lot of people going back to school and there's a lot of families that may find themselves parents as empty nesters. They need organizational change management to deal with their new operating model. Don't underestimate the power and the ability of your human workforce to move or to not be able to move through the changes. I really appreciate Tammy's words. Still to this day, I hear leaders ask why we need to participate in these change management activities, especially the ones centering on protecting their people. Yet, I can turn to dozens of examples where a lot of money was lost or a lot of money was saved just by following some simple change management steps. Tammy couldn't agree more. It pays for itself. You know, and the, the other old saying is sometimes you have to go slow to go fast or you can pay now or you can pay later, but you're going to pay. So getting the investment up front has proven time and time and time again to be more efficient, to be more effective, to allow you to get to new operating models faster. And if people feel good along the way, then that's great. But that's really... <laughs> That is not the objective at the end of the day. It's a fabulous byproduct. Exactly. Love it. Well, thank you so much for spending time with me today. I feel like I could probably go on and ask a zillion more questions. But in the meantime, maybe you could just share with our listeners how they could contact you if they're interested in getting to know you or learning more insights from you. Yes, absolutely. You can reach me at my email, and that is Tammy. Dot Pinkston at isg-1.com. I also have a profile out on LinkedIn, and I, I think that I'm the only Tammy Pinkston that's out there. So, you know, Jen, I appreciate the opportunity, and I'll, I'll be happy to explore any topic with you at any time. Oh, I love that. 
And just a quick um, question. I think you recently launched your own podcast, or maybe you're involved in a podcast of some some sort. Do you want to say a word on that? Well, it is it is still in development, and it is it isn't going to be as organizationally focused. So it is going to be about change management. It is going to be about leadership, but it's really going to be much more on the individual behavior point of view. And um, yeah, I I hope that this will launch sometime in the next few months. And uh, we'll just be talking about a lot of things, but it'll be primarily around individuals' capabilities, some of the topics about how how women do a disservice to themselves in the workplace, and just things to be aware that will help us not limit ourselves in our potential. It, it's all things that we think about and we talk about and maybe even beat ourselves up a little bit. So I'm really excited about how it's shaping. And I think ultimately, I'll probably have to develop and get a sidekick to give me a generational perspective. Because I, I will admit that, you know, I've spent a lot of time in predominantly male-dominated uh, spaces. And I think the world has changed a lot in terms of some of the 20-somethings that are arriving on uh, corporations' doorsteps. And I want to explore some of those areas with them because I think they have very different perspectives that those of us that have been in this in this game and in this space for, as I said, almost three decades. Well, there you have it. There's the teaser, folks. So keep your eye on uh, Tammy's LinkedIn profile for any announcements that may be coming out around that. And I'm excited for you. So thank you. All right, cool. Thank you, everyone, for listening and joining this episode of our Survive and Thrive podcast. Remember, at Consinity, we empower the conscious leader to realize positive and sustainable change. Until next time, don't just survive, thrive. Take care.